Hello everyone, 
My name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 18th of September. Our reading this week follows on from the passage that we looked at last week, the parables of the lost sheep, lost coin and lost son. In today's podcast I'll be looking at how that passage is connected to the story that we're reading today. I've given this week's podcast the title, It's Not About the Mess, It's How You Clear It Up. And our first song is about regretting mistake and the desire to do over the past, if I could turn back time. Some notices. We meet for worship today, as usual, at 10.30 and all are welcome. The Scrabble Club meets on Tuesday at 2.30 in Cross Street. This month's free church service is a little later in the month than usual and takes place in the cathedral on Wednesday at 11am. The preacher will be the Reverend Lisa Kerry, who is the new regional ministry team leader of the Central Baptist Association. Finally, an apology, as you may hear some strange noises during the course of the podcast. Scaffolding is being erected outside the church ahead of work being carried out on the spire. And now our call to worship, some verses from Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Yes, give praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord now and forever. Everywhere from east to west, praise the name of the Lord. For the Lord is high above the nations. His glory is higher than the heavens. Who can be compared with the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high? He stoops to look down on heaven and on earth. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, even the princes of his own people. He gives the childless woman a family, making her a happy mother. Praise the Lord.
pause in the sacred space between one week and the next to reflect on what has been and what will be. From the grey areas of our lives, we gather in the light of your love, Lord, to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be shown how to do and be the best we can. Holy God, as we meet together, help us to be aware of your presence. Create in us a desire to build your kingdom, so that as we listen to your word and sing your praises, we will understand how to be your people wherever you have placed us. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 16, beginning at the first verse. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There's a word that we find in our passage today that occurs rarely in the New Testament. Rather confusingly, the same word is translated into English in different ways, dependent on the context. The word is diascorpizo and it's usually translated into English as to scatter. But scatter is just one meaning of diascorpizo. For example, scatter is the meaning that occurs in the parable of the talents, where the one talent servant reasons that his master sows where he's not scattered seeds. When it's used in the parable that I read today, it has more the meaning of squander rather than scatter, or as we find it translated here, wasted when the servant is accused of wasting his master's possessions. Now, you might wonder why I am talking so much about this, and I can assure you that it's not to show off the benefit of a classical education. No, the reason is that this word is key to understanding this rather odd parable. I've preached on these verses a few times before, but I'd previously missed something that in hindsight is so obvious. 
I'm sure that you know that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and all the other people who wrote the books of the Bible didn't divide up their books into chapters and verses. It wasn't until the early 13th century that chapters were introduced and it wasn't until the 16th century that a further division into verses was made. It's extremely useful to be able to refer to a place in scripture by chapter and verse rather than say it comes somewhere in the middle just after the Sermon on the Mount but if you get to Palm Sunday you've missed it. But there is a downside to having chapters. These bite-sized chunks make it useful for reading a section of a book but they can also lead us to miss that what we are reading is part of a continuous narrative. For example, our passage today comes immediately after the chapter that we looked at last week, in which Jesus tells the story of the lost sheep, another story about a lost coin, and then finally a story of a lost son. If we hadn't read it last week, we might have forgotten that chapter 15 contains those parables, and so when we read from chapter 16 today, we might not have thought that there was any connection with what had gone on before. And this is where our word diascorpizo comes in. It's a word that occurs three times in Luke's book, and two of these occurrences are just a few lines apart. In chapter 15, verse 13, we read in one of the most famous stories that Jesus told, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And now today, just 21 verses later, we read there was a rich man whose manager was accused of squandering his master's possessions. Now, sometimes a coincidence is no more than that, a coincidence, but sometimes it is more than that. And I suspect that this is the case with these two occurrences of this one word. In the story at the end of chapter 15, we read about a man who squandered his inherited possessions. In the passage we read today, a man squandered his master's possessions. Both men fell on hard times and were forced to reassess their lives. Drastic times call for drastic measures, and both men sought to get out of the fix that they'd got themselves in by appealing, in one case to a father and in the other case to a master. So we can see how these two passages can be linked. There was squandering and there were desperate measures taken in order to climb out of the hole they had dug for themselves. We'll come back to this, but first we should look at the detail in this parable. The problem is that to understand the parable, we need to know more than we do about the culture of first century Palestine. In other words, is the situation that is described in this story normal or not? We can compare this story with examples from other accounts written at the time. Another option that has been used is to compare first century Palestine with Middle Eastern customs in the modern world. This might work, but early 20th century attempts to do this can sound patronising at best and racist at worst. Here is a commentary on this parable that was written more than 100 years ago. The steward not only had to collect the revenues of his master, but he had to hand over what he could to the master without giving him trouble. In fact, the eastern reluctance to be troubled, possibly more ingrained in the Near East than in the Far East, is an element not to be neglected. By it, the wide scope of action given to the steward becomes intelligible. 
provided he handed over to his lord annually a fixed sum of money or fixed quantities of wheat, oil, etc., the landlord would not bother at all how the steward had hired out the farmland nor how he got the revenues. As long as the owner got what he expected, he would exercise absolutely no control over the management of the steward, so that there was no need at all for double bookkeeping. In all probability, he didn't pay him for his work, but took for granted that the steward would not forget his own interests. No matter how much he overtaxed the tenants in his personal interest, it was no concern to the master, nor would he mind in the least if his steward, for one reason or another, gave up his personal emoluments. If this is true, and it certainly has the ring of truth about it, then why did the owner threaten to sack his manager? My guess is that some of those who had borrowed from the manager had been offended by the amount of interest charged and grasped him up to the owner. Now, the owner may well have known that this sort of thing went on, but he couldn't condone it because charging interest is against the law of Moses. Or perhaps he didn't like the idea of the manager making so much money off the back of his estate. Whatever the precise reason, the owner gave the manager the sack and told him to get the estate's accounts in order so that he would be able to hire a new manager to take over. The owner of the estate could hardly accuse the manager of charging too much interest when officially the manager shouldn't have been running this sideline. So it seems that he accused him of sloppy business management as the estate didn't have as much oil and wheat in the store as he expected. The manager's thought processes sound very much like those of the prodigal son, i.e., I'm going to have to find a way to get me out of this jam. He didn't know whether his plan would help him keep his job, but it would at least smooth the way for a roof over his head if there was to be a period of unemployment. Cancelling the debts of the tenants wouldn't have helped the situation. While the tenant would have been delighted, the owner wouldn't have got his wheat or olive oil and would have been just as unhappy with the manager. This way, effectively cancelling the interest on the loan and calling in the loan meant that no one lost. The owner got to keep his stuff and saved face, the neighbours who owed stuff were treated more fairly, and if the manager didn't keep his job and lost a bit of money, at least he would now have friends in town who would give him a roof over his head. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. So, what's the point of this story? I wonder if Jesus is saying that because it has the capacity to lead us astray, we should use our money to make friends. If that's helped us a little, we still need to determine who the friends are. The story itself doesn't offer us much help, but I wonder if there's not an echo here of the words of Jesus that Matthew records. Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Could it be that when we use our money, our talents and our time for the good of the poor, we make friends for ourselves in heaven? Jesus is referring to a situation with which his hearers would be familiar, although it was technically wrong. And Jesus knew how people turned a blind eye to it. But having worked as a carpenter and dealt with people, some of whom would have tried to get a better deal from him than they were entitled, Jesus knew how human beings behaved. 
However, he doesn't condone how the manager used his master's goods. Instead, he commends the manager for how he retrieved a potentially disastrous situation. Jesus seems to be saying, worldly people know how to turn a bad situation around and get out of trouble. Well, it's like that with God too. If you're in a bad situation with God, do whatever you have to do to make it right. Turn around and turn back to him. Two other parables are worth comparing to this. One is another story about the two sons. Their father asked them to do something for him. One said he would, but then didn't. The other said he wouldn't, but then did. Life doesn't always go to plan. Sometimes wrong turnings are taken, but God has given us a way back to him. Take a leaf out of the book of those who do well in the world. Do whatever it takes to make it right. The son who refused his father displeased him, but he made matters right by changing his mind. Repenting is the Bible word. And then he did what was required of him. There is much that relates the story of the lost son to the manager in our story. The son squandered his inheritance, much as the manager had been accused of squandering his master's property. The son turned back towards home of his own volition, but there is no suggestion that the manager would have carried on any differently had he not been confronted by the owner. But both the manager and the son sought to make things right between themselves and the other party. However, neither knew what the reaction of the injured party would be. Would the son be taken back? Would the manager save his job? Both men did what they believed they had to do, and both the master and the father were prepared to restore their relationships again. And our relationship with God can be restored. The lost can find a home, and the one whose life has been marred can be made whole and clean again. This passage might be clearer if we see the parable and the commentary around it as being directed at different sets of people. I read an interview with the American comedian Chris Rock. He's the one who got slapped in the face by Will Smith at the Oscars. And Chris Rock said that the best comics can work multiple audiences in the same room and that sometimes you tell a joke and half the crowd won't get it, but you didn't do it for them. You did it for the half that does get the joke. And maybe this could be the way we should view this parable that Jesus told. There's the parable itself in which an already dishonest manager performs new acts of questionable morality. And then the boss he just cheated responds by praising him. At this point, we might expect Jesus to say, don't be like that. Don't do that. But instead, Jesus' commentary on his own story is basically, look how much smarter this guy is than all of you. Jesus seems to be affirming the manager's sharp practice. And then what is the ethical teaching that Jesus draws from this story? To use dishonest wealth, to make friends with dishonest people, to become just like the dishonest manager. After which he seems to quote some older sayings, one of which says to be faithful with dishonest wealth. So what's going on here? These parables about money are tricky. Sometimes we seem to be presented with a money-hating socialist Jesus who encourages his disciples to defeat the system by any means necessary. 
It could be connected with another teaching of Jesus that his disciples are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And that Jesus is telling us, do what you've got to do, which is inconsistent with almost every other part of the Gospels. But what if Jesus is talking to two different audiences here? In the parable, he's talking to the disciples, but he's also surrounded by others whom Luke refers to as tax collectors, sinners and Pharisees. This is one parable in a sort of sermon series from Jesus about money, doing right with it and getting a second chance to do right when previously you haven't. Try to imagine hearing this straight after hearing the parable of the prodigal son and then it makes a lot more sense. Jesus talks to the crowd and then he pauses. Then he talks to his disciples and then in verse 9 talks to the crowd again. Make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, he says. In other words, if you've been dishonest thus far, use what you've gained to do some good. He's not telling the disciples to be dishonest. This is a sermon for those among them who have already proved themselves to be dishonest. And the dishonest manager isn't praised because he becomes dishonest. He's praised because he finally figures out how to do some good for his boss. Maybe Zacchaeus was in this crowd that day because a few chapters on we read about how he had used his allegedly dishonest wealth to do good. It's the decision to change that is of note here, the same as it was in the prodigal son parable just before. The manager in this story is no worse than the prodigal son. The son didn't repent in the way that we understand that word. He just worked out a way to get out of a jam. In our time, this might sound like, do some good, you dishonest people, even if it means you have to take a financial hit to finally get on the right track so that you find yourself on the right side of history. The man in our story this week faced a crisis and made the right choice with regard to how to make things right. Both the manager and the prodigal son were confronted with decisions to be made and Jesus says that this is what following him is like. We are confronted with decisions to be made and how we decide to act, which direction we choose, governs whether or not we walk with him. You see, this passage is not really about money, but how we use our money may be part of doing the right thing. The charity commissioners in the UK are not keen for the charities they control to build up large reserves of cash in the bank. In this, they seem to be in agreement with Jesus. Here, our word of the day comes in again. Money is not to be squandered, but it should be scattered. Money is a resource so long as it's given or spent or scattered, especially for providing to those in need and releasing people from debt. Thus, it builds the kingdom of God, whereas a privatised account that protects against all forms of dispersal stands in the way of growing the sort of relationships and serving the kind of purposes that matter. There might be a number of ways of reading this parable, but it is certainly about how we live and the choices we make. How we live includes the friends we choose, how we spend our time and how we use our wealth. Someone once wrote that people who bear crosses are working with the grain of the universe. 
The implication is that God is moving the universe in a particular direction and making that direction known through the work of the cross. The manager described by Jesus in Luke's parable, for example, surveyed the direction of his life and acted shrewdly. He used all the means at his disposal to adapt to his new reality. We should be no less shrewd in adapting to God's reality. We should, as I seem to keep saying, be always looking to join in with what God is doing. Now, this is not a question of working our way into heaven. God will have his future whether we choose to participate or not. The question for us is much more fundamental. Shall we move with the grain of the universe or shall we just drift in the current that's flowing around us? Our choices are not those that this manager was forced to make, but we must follow his example and make the choices that are in keeping with the future that God is placing before us. In so doing, we will be working with the grain of the universe and we will be joining in with what God is already doing in the here and now.
Let us pray. Lord, we regret the times we have been unwise or short-sighted when we have not thought through the impact of our actions. Give us the ability to make adjustments to our lives, to build each other up, and to invest ourselves in ways that are beneficial to all. Help us when we get confused, when things aren't black and white, when we injure others and ourselves, whether deliberately or accidentally. Forgive us, restore us and help us to repair what has been broken. God, you turn your face from our wrongdoing, but you do not turn away from us. Every time we come to you acknowledging our woundedness and folly, you bring us back. You see the person you made us to be, and you wipe the slate clean again. There is no residue left behind, no mark on our record that you cannot erase. You embrace us unconditionally and turn our brokenness to beauty. Thank you, all-loving God. Restore us to you and to your community. Amen. Lord God, we pray for a world where money talks and money acts, for politicians who set out with high ideals but may have been compromised, for nations and their leaders where money for weapons is found but not for the needs of hungry people. And yet we realise that money is necessary, and so we pray for the services that care for people while having to work with diminishing budgets for the financial services that place profit above consumer care, and for ourselves for guidance in making careful choices. Help us in our dealings to be just and fair, to be true to our ethical values, even when we make small purchases, to think of how our gains may be losses to others. Money is not evil. It is the love of it. Let us not love it for its own sake. Let it be an agent for good in the world, used to promote just and equal communities. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
Last week I said in one of our services that not everything in the Bible is religious but that it is all about God because it's all about life and God is about life. We had to look beyond theology to understand our story today as it was using an illustration of the way that people behave to suggest how we can be put right with God. Our last song today rather embraces this idea. It's sung by Billy Currington and has the chorus, God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. But first, a final prayer. Take note of what goes on around you, but do not be compromised by it. Look beyond the tangled webs of society's dealings to the community of faith that sustains you and be guided by the one who is just. Amen. This old man and me We're at the bar and we We're having us some beers Swapping I don't care Talking politics Blonde and redhead chicks Old dogs and new tricks And habits we ain't kicked We talked about God's grace And all the hell we raised and Then I heard the old man say God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. He said, I fought two wars, been married and divorced. What brings you to Ohio? He said, Damn if I know. We talked an hour or two. About every girl we knew What all we put them through Like two old boys will do We pondered life and death He lit a cigarette Said these damn things will kill me But God is great, beer is good People are crazy Last call is 2 a.m. I said goodbye to him I never talked to him again and 
Then one sunny day I saw the old man's face Front page obituary He was a millionaire He left his fortune to Some guy he barely knew His kids were mad as hell But me, I'm doing well And I drop by today Say thanks and pray And I left a six pack Right there on his grave And I said God is great Beer is good And people are crazy God is great Beer is good People are crazy God is great, beer is good And people are crazy